Yeah. Well, should we begin? With a handful of you here, that's good. We knew the first week, I already had to turn some folks back that didn't want to stay for Bible study, but wanted to come for church. And, uh, oh, wow. Yeah, so I'm like, come back at 9.30 if you don't want to stay for class. I encourage you to just stay, but... I, well, they just didn't get the schedule changed, so... Little, little, maybe not on the uh, email list or whatever. So. I think Pastor Hot said that happened. Oh, well, and it, it happens with uh, even uh, daylight savings too. Right. I always get people here at the wrong time. So, let's begin with prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, you have invited us uh, to feast upon your Word and your Sacrament. We ask that uh, this would be a blessing to us and strengthen us in our faith. In Jesus' name, Amen. amen. All right, so you have the, the installation of pastor, and we got through, actually, all the texts, so pages one and two, front side, back side. Now, we're going to go on the top of page three, because I think last time I said, oh, we'll get through, we'll get into that already, but we didn't. We got hung up on one verse again. Or actually, it's three verses. Actually, we got through three verses. That's encouraging. That's sometimes better than usual. So this is called the questioning, um, and... This is, maybe you want to liken this to a marriage. I think of it in terms of a marriage. In a marriage, you have, um, you have vows, right? And each spouse promises to, well, we have kind of a form for that, don't we? We didn't bring a hymnal down here. Um, but it's, the, it's the, old, the old Anglican rite, which you know, for better, for poor, for richer. Oh, Kathy should remember. She's got, do you remember the, the vows? I didn't have to memorize it. Before. No, you didn't. You just got to listen, right? It's nice. Till death do us part was how that ends. Um, so here you are. No, uh, and uh, that's not the same, of course, with a, a pastor in a congregation. Although sometimes uh, they are sep- you're separated from your pastor by death. That happened here, right? Didn't a pastor die while he was serving here? He had only been maybe a year and a half or something like that. Do you remember? Oh, that you were telling. It was your dad? It was your dad, right. But also, Pastor Farina. Okay. Oh, I see. It was after he had... Right, yeah. So you don't retire from a marriage, but you can from the ministry. So uh, so there's vows, and, they're both, and there's two sides to it. And so you'll see it later. Uh, in the installation of the pastor of a congregation, that's the address to then to the congregation. This is the questioning of the pastor, and uh, it's really his promise, um, both before God, but to you, um, and to the whole church, actually. So, uh, it begins with an address. Dear brother in Christ, the Lord grant that you receive and keep these words, which is everything we've been studying for the last, what, ten or so sessions. Um, however many months that's been. And keep these words in your heart so that you may be strengthened and encouraged in your labors. That's an interesting statement. One is that you, that you receive them, that you hear them, but two, that you treasure them or keep them in the way of, think of St. Mary. You know, she pondered these things in her heart. That's the word tereo in Greek, which means to, to treasure or to store up or to keep safe, right? So that's what you're saying to the pastor that, that these words be your encouragement. And that's probably also because, practically speaking, um, pastors don't often receive encouragement 
from the congregation. Um, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just not. Uh, you're here and you receive gifts regularly, but, but you don't often, uh, you really don't need to say thank you, <laughs> but to the Lord, right? But not to the pastor. He's, he's here just to give the gifts. Um, but it, that doesn't mean that pastors don't, don't enjoy encouragement. Everyone does. And uh, I, my practice has been, or my uh, experience, I should say, has been that the times where I most need encouragement um, and I haven't received it necessarily from the word of God, I'll hear it from, from a congregation member. So like at a low point, someone will say um, just something simple like, uh, you've been a good pastor to me or um, I was uh, interesting or a good sermon today or something like that. Okay? But, but primarily, it's the Word of God that encourages the pastor in their labors and strengthens them. And uh, so there you go. Any questions about that so far? Okay. Continues. God gathers his church by and around his holy gospel, and thereby also grants it growth and increase according to his good pleasure. That this may be done... He has established the office of the holy ministry into which you have been called by the church and have been ordained and consecrated by prayer and the laying on of hands. It is fitting that you should again acknowledge the responsibilities of this holy office in which you are to serve as, and then depending on the specific vocation, pastor, missionary, or chaplain, of or at this congregation, these congregations, which is becoming pretty common, especially in rural settings, uh, country, so that would be as a chaplain, right? Or institution. Um, oh, missionary actually belongs to country and then chaplain to institution. So that might be armed forces or a specific branch probably. Uh, there's a lot in that, right? Basically what we're summarizing in this statement is the third article of the Apostles' Creed, which you learned. Um, I believe in the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting, right? Now, I know that's hard to do because we're going to say the Nicene Creed in a few, but I believe in the Holy Christian Church, right? And, and the communion of saints. Uh, that word communion of saints, it, it can mean, it, literally translated, because the creed it was written in Latin, um, literally translated, it's communion of the holy. So it could be the holy people, Saints can be the holy things, thinking um, in terms of like uh, God's word and sacrament, um, or it can be, well, those are the two main reasons. And also the communion of the Holy Church, right? Is that we join together in communion. When we call uh, the Lord's Supper Holy Communion, that primarily, uh, or originally referred to your union with Christ. So you receive his body and blood in your mouth, thereby are joined to Christ. Um, in another way, uh, similar to your baptism, where you're joined through water. Uh, but I think a lot of people understand that communion to be communion with one another as well. And of course, I don't have a thing drawn in here, but if you're each individually joined to Christ, then you are also, think of it as a circuit, right? You're joined to one another. But by virtue of being joined to, to your head, to Christ. So I think that's where the where the confusion about the word communion gets, um, where it gets to be a little harried is when people think of it really only as union with one another, and they forget about the, really the, the main thing in the sacrament, which is forgiveness in Christ. All right, so let's see, where were we? 
the third article, the creed, you remember how it goes in the small catechism? I believe that I cannot, do you remember this? Own reason or strength, believe in Jesus Christ my Lord, or come to him, but has called me by the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts, sanctified and kept me in the true faith, right? In the same way he calls, gathers, enlightens, and sanctifies the whole Christian church on earth and keeps it with Jesus Christ in the one true faith. Or true faith. I can't remember if it's one or true there, right? I always mess it up. So in the third article of the Creed, as you're taught in the Catechism, um, you're, you're, you're led to, to confess that you believe that you can't believe. To just put it very simply, right? I believe that I cannot, by my own reason or strength, believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him. So um, not only can you not believe, but you can't even decide to, to believe. Which is a pretty profound statement, isn't it? Especially in contrast to, um, what do we call it, decision theology, right? Um, it's 8 o'clock in the morning. This is a little bit harder to do. <laughs> I'm not warmed up. So, yeah, and if you don't say much, that's fine. I can just keep talking. So, if you have questions, just interrupt me. So, uh, we're saying the same thing here, right? God gathers his church by... The means to gather the church is by, and it's actually to be gathered around, his holy gospel. And also grants it growth and increase according to his good pleasure, meaning it's his good work. Right? That he's the one who calls, gathers, enlightens, and sanctifies the whole Christian church. You'll hear about calling, the calling of the ch- into the church today. Our gospel text um, is one of those um, texts where he talks about um, inviting or calling into the church. Inviting is maybe a little bit more challenging with translation, but the word is called or elected into salvation. So he calls you, he gathers you together around the feet of Jesus. There, calls, gathers, sanctifies, makes you holy. Uh, that comes next, right? That, he, that this may be done, he established the office of the holy ministry, which the pastor has been called by the church. So been put in that office. But that office, as we've talked about for many, many weeks, is for the purpose that you would hear the gospel and the Spirit would work through that word to gather you to the church and to keep you in the church too, right? Calls, gathers, enlightens, sanctifies. But what was the, oh, that he, and I have to try to back up and do this by memory, and keeps it with Jesus Christ in the one true faith, right? The church. That's also God, the Holy Spirit's work. So it's the reason why we don't like have the gospel to get people into the church and then we move on to other topics, <laughs> Which would be a temptation. Welcome. No, it's okay. That's the reason why the church, um, why you don't, you don't ask the church to say, well, we're done with the gospel now, or we've got the gospel, or I believe the gospel, now tell me about other things. Because uh, really it's naive, it's spiritually naive, to think that somehow you're going to just stay in the church by your reason or strength. <laughs> because the scriptures teach clearly that, that you're going to be tormented day and night by your own sinful nature and the temptations of the flesh, but this world and then the devil and his demons and their temptations. So we continue to hear the gospel. That's the only, way that, that's the only thing that keeps us in the church, too. It brings us in and it keeps us here. And the office of the ministry is, is God's instrument, one of God's instruments, I should say, to do that. Uh, you've been ordained. Did we talk about what that meant? Uh, so um, I... Just look, you can see the first three letters, ord, think ordered, maybe another way to say that. You've been set 
into this order, um, as in you're the pastor of a congregation or you're a, a, of the clergy of the whole church. And uh, I think we talked quite a bit about kind of the medieval abuse, the thing that Luther uh, fought against was that somehow by being ordained, set into an order of clergy, that that makes you a better Christian. Did we talk about that? Maybe we didn't talk about it too much. I know we, I brought up um, the priesthood of all believers. Do you remember that? Okay. So that was probably three or four sessions ago that uh, St. Peter teaches that we're all uh, royal priests under Christ our head. He's our high priest, and we're all priests under him, meaning we all have access to God's grace, mercy, peace. Uh, we have access to his word. We can serve here in his church um, in our unique ways, and we serve our neighbors and their needs too, and that's our priesthood. Um, not in the terms, not in the sense of Roman Catholic, uh, how they think of priests um, as you think of as pastors. The office of the ministry is separate from the priesthood of all believers with the specific Benefit that you would hear the word spoken to you from outside of you, that you receive Christ's gifts according to his own giving of them. And again, all externally to you. Um, you don't have your own little church services at home. You might have, hopefully have devotional life where you pray and you hear God's word. Um, but you don't, you're not gathered with other Christians and in a public setting to hear God's word preached and taught to you, which is what Christ instituted. Mm. So I'm, I'm throwing a lot at you. Everybody tracking so far? So to be ordered. Consecrated is a different word. This, came up, uh, this comes up in a couple settings, but it's, it's really a churchy word. To be consecrated, hmm, what would be something that would be equivalent to that in our world? Or something, well, I have to tell you what it means. Maybe think of it this way, to be set apart for a specific use. So to be consecrated is... To, and specifically here, a holy use or for God's use. What's something like that? Oh, well, the sacraments, of course, are, are, have consecration anointing. attached to them. What's that? Anointing? Yeah, anointing. Um, I was thinking of like a, of, a, of a ship. Hey, there's our sailor. Ship, and you christen it, right? And they break the champagne bottle against it. Is that right? <coughs> Which I don't know where that whole tradition comes from. Uh, it seems a little bizarre to me, but... Superstition is actually what it is. Oh, I'm sure. Sailors are the worst about that. Need more sheets? I grab this now. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I That's have to hand that out. Sign the register. We don't have... Oh, we do have a clock in here. Good. Um, so the ship is set apart for use, right? It's been built, but, but superstitiously, they say, we're not going to sail it until it's been... Baptized. Baptized, so to speak, yeah. With alcohol. <laughs> It'll be free flowing later on too, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, Is that similar to dedicated? Yeah, dedication, right? Um, and typically speaking, like for example, um, if you if we built a, a new a new courthouse, um, are you it, it's dedicated or it's gonna there's gonna be a ribbon cutting or something like that? Do you go in and use it for anything other than court? No, that building has been set apart, designated for, for the court, right? Whatever court it is, of appeals or circuit court or whatever. Um, I got to think, do we have other things that are like this? They tend to be things that, have, um, that are used for what we might consider important matters, right? So a ship, but um, a courtroom. Inauguration. Oh, well, yeah, inauguration. White House, I don't know, Oval Office. 
I guess when you watch TV, you find out all sorts of weird things might happen in that room. But, um, but generally, the only time we see it is when he's signing some bill, right? Or, or there's a television address. But it's used for presidential things, right? That's the president's office, so to speak. Uh, so we have the same thing in the church, and this is stemming back, way back from the Old Testament, um, that God, uh, especially with the, with the institution of the tabernacle, and then later the temple, that God would have the, the priests, who we might liken to pastors now, um, not only were they set apart and then consecrated, sometimes consecrated with oil, anointing of oil, um, but also with, with washings, and then they would actually take the blood. Read Leviticus; it's a pretty cool uh, book if you're into blood. So take the blood of the bull, and they put it on. It's on the right earlobe, I think. Yeah, right earlobe, the right thumb, and then the right toe, big toe. Yeah. Um, but think of Jesus' own words. He says, "You know, um, uh, blessed are those who uh, proclaim the good news to you, or, or I'd say, or blessed are the feet, right?" talks about the feet that, that bring the good news. Yeah, and those who do not see. But also, I mean, it has to do with the matters of, of, of uh, belief and faith, is that it comes through hearing, and it comes at the hand of the pastor who gives, and, and it comes when the pastor comes to you. That's in Leviticus, but that's the way that the priest was set apart to, to do God's work. But not only the priest himself, what else? What's that? Thomas. Well, doubting Thomas comes later. But what else is set apart or consecrated for holy use, for use in God's worship? Okay, bread. There's the show bread in particular in the Old Testament. And now we consecrate the, the sac. When we consecrate the sacrament, the body and blood, the bread and wine, it's set apart. It's used for that purpose. And uh, incidentally, then, we don't go and take the wine and the, the bread after um, the Lord's Supper, if there's leftovers, and go have a little party, you know, and treat it as if it weren't set apart now anymore. Um, that's been the tradition of the church, is once it's set apart, it remains set apart for, for that use. Whether at that service, or in, in, in the case here at St. John's, um, it's reserved, and then it's used for another sacrament later. Um, yeah, so you don't get drunk on the communion wine. <laughs> um, but that, happened, that happens in churches unfortunately, and it's happened in the past. What else is set apart? The vessels themselves are dedicated, right? So you don't use the communion vessels for other purposes because they're consecrated. Old, Old Testament, the, the altars were all set apart, washed and, and ritually. The, even the tent posts, the poles of the tabernacle and the awnings and everything about it was set apart, and that's all they used it for. Yeah. yeah, and the vestments too that the priests wear and, and ours tend to be as well. They can be, um, we have rites for all of these things, rites of blessing or consecration. You can, you can actually do the artwork, the organ, the, the, the books that are used. All these things can be set apart. Um, and I think that's a helpful thing because, I mean, one, it has precedent. God instructed his people to do that. But, oh, the cross too is, is set apart. But what's the real benefit of it? Why, why does set apart uh, a man, for example, to preach God's word and to teach? Why, why do that? Otherwise, what's going to be the question? Who's the one who's supposed to be preaching to me today, right? And it's a free-for-all, which I've seen. That happens at, at funerals, right? 
Anybody have any words to say? <laughs> and then you hear all sorts of things. Uh, same with the vessels, right? Like, what are we going to put the sacrament in this week? And then maybe we're just going to put a paper and plastic this week because, you know, that's all we've got. Well, that would be, I suppose that would be okay. Um, but isn't it not better to say, here's a, here's a special vessel that we've, we've invested in, but we use regularly and we've dedicated for that to indicate that what it holds, um, if you like, is special or is holy in of itself. Well, and certainly it's Christ's body and blood, right? So we indicate that with our vessels. Um, it's not out of necessity, but it's, it's out of the desire to teach, right? And to say, reverence. yeah, reverence is another word for like teaching what is holy, what is, or what is of God, we might say. You are a holy priesthood. You've been set apart by God by baptism, right? So God has chosen you. He set you apart. Uh, he's called you by name, right? And you are his. That's what makes you holy <laughs> uh, in one sense. And another sense is he's forgiven you your sins, which is uh, holy can also uh, has the connotation that you've been purified or you're cleansed. Right? All right. So the, the pastor has been ordained. Those of you who have walked in late here, we're on the page three. We're in this larger paragraph at the top, about halfway in. He's been ordained, set, up, uh, set into order, consecrated, set apart by prayer and the laying on of hands. This all happened at his ordination. We're looking at the installation, right? Which is what you'll be using here, God willing, sometime soon. Um, so at his ordination, um, all the pastors put their hands upon him. That's the tradition. And in a lot of cases, that's happening now at installations as well, even though it's not in the right. The, the, um, whoever's conducting the installation will invite the pastors to do kind of a, what do you want to say, like a rededication or a, I don't know what the word is. It's not a reordination, but kind of a remembrance of his ordination with the laying on of hands. It is fitting that you should again acknowledge the responsibilities of this holy office in which you are to serve as pastor of this congregation. So here he's going to repeat the vows that he made at his ordination. All right. Does that follow? All right. Very good. So uh, whoever's conducting this service, which is usually uh, some overseer, so uh, if not the district president, it'll be one of the district's vice presidents or, or the circuit visitor. And all of those people can represent the district president, but normally it's the district president. I suppose you could be ordained by the synodical president, um, but there's not really, I don't think there's any precedent for that for us. We'll give Yeah, give him a call and say, look, we got a real special one here. And uh, all you have to do is say real special one and then attach dollar signs and you'll get them. Yeah. I mean, it's not a, it's, you're not baiting them, you're just saying, you know. We'll, we'll make it worth your while. We'll foot the bill. We'll, foot the bill. we'll more than foot the bill. Yeah. All right. So, question, uh, in the presence of this congregation and before our God, Lord God, to whom you must give an account now and at the last day, I now ask you. So, take these vows seriously because um, it's, you're going to be held on account for keeping of all the things that the Lord has charged you to do with the texts that we've already studied, which we, I think we talked about how the pastor's responsibilities have a special burden attached to them? Do we have some nodding heads or no? Yeah. Yeah. So that the pastor, um, you know, how does it go? Jesus says, you know, um, 
better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and throw to the bottom of the sea than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So that, that the, the apostles and later pastors are, have a serious charge that, um, that they don't take, that you ought not take lightly. And that, um, especially when we're, we're um, referring to like causing offense, right? Causing people to stumble. If any, if the only, really the only cause the pastor has to cause offense is, is by the preaching of the gospel. Somebody say they're so offended that, that they got their sins forgiven again. Which, believe it or not, people get offended by Jesus dying for them. And that being enough. And being the whole thing, really. Yeah, so it's a stumbling block and a rock of offense, as, as uh, St. Paul said. Okay, so if, if you're going to cause offense, that better be the only reason. Um, and even then, that's not your work. That's actually the Spirit's work to bring to account someone else. In James, I think he says that teachers are held to a more strict standard. Mm, that's right. James yeah, is that not in, in the text? It isn't. That should be, you should add that in. You can add that in. <laughs> Tell the officiant, hey, I got another verse to put in there. <laughs> All right, so the questions, and these are pretty straightforward. Do you acknowledge that the Lord has called you through his church into the ministry of word and sacrament? If so, answer. <laughs> I do. Yeah, so I do. He wouldn't have to say that. Uh, so that's just to say, yes, I've been ordained. I've been set apart. Next question. Do you believe and confess the canonical books of the Old and New Testaments to be the inspired word of God and the only infallible rule of faith and practice? And then the pastor just repeats that, right? I believe and confess the canonical scriptures to be the inspired word of God and the only infallible rule of faith and practice. Now, uh, this vow changed in the 70s. Anybody, any of you know the history what words might have been added to this vow? Canonical, maybe? Mm, I think canonical was original. Inspired. Inspired and infallible. infallible. Yeah, those two words, which uh, we picked up from what are often called the fundamentalists. Confession. Uh, so these were terms that the fundamentalist movement in the early 20th century um, attached to the Word of God. We repurpose them. <laughs> we have kind of a different intent as to what they mean than the fundamentalists did. But they were added because there were those in our church body that, uh, actually the majority of the faculty at the St. Louis Seminary, believed um, they, could, they could not confess these two words. That it was infallible, meaning it doesn't fail. It does what it says it will do. You know, I need to say that again? Infallible means it does what it says it will do. So when Jesus says your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven, right? When he says, this is my body, this is my blood. That is his body, this is, that is his blood. When he says, I baptize you, it is his baptism, right? When he says, this word will call, gather, enlighten, and sanctify, right? Well, that's Luther's summary, but when he says that his word will um, gather his church and will keep it uh, with him, then that's true, it's, and, and it doesn't fail, uh, Isaiah, I think, right? Um, um, word, word of God is uh, living and active or powerful and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. No, that's the repeat in the New Testament. What's the old, how's the Old Testament go? It, it does not fail in that for which I sent it or for what I purpose it. Is that right? Yeah, I'm trying to remember the reference, but it's not coming to me. I'll, I'll just bemoan the early hour again. It's so early. My brain's not quite clicking yet. Uh, so the Word of God does what it says. That, believe it or not, that was a problem. 
major form of rejection. What do you mean? Explain. To say that I can't ascribe to these terms. Yeah. Even though Jesus is behind them. Right. Yeah, they, they would say that the word of God does not work unless it is joined to some some to our reason, to our strength, to our powers, to our abilities. So there can be no church apart from our working, which we don't deny, but we view we view our efforts uh, in, in keeping I I think Luther's term is good here as instrumental. So we are God's instruments, like a musical instrument or a utensil, right? That we accomplish the work, we do the work, but only because God's hand is behind it, because he is living and active, working in and through us, using us, if you like. And do we cooperate? That's a difficult word, because cooperate means to do the work. In a sense, we do. In a sense, we don't, right? So... Um, we're just very cautious about taking any of the glory away from God and in the things that He's promised to do, right? Mm-hmm. I, I think what it's trying to say is that what what is in God's Word will transcend anything that we can come up with. There's always more. There's always more to God's Word than we see. Well, um, that's true. I mean, it is. There is mysteries, right? And uh, the sacrament of the altar is a good one, or the mystery of the body and blood. Um, but I don't know, which word would that attach to, infallible or inspired? I think probably more inspired, right? Mm-hmm. We did talk about ins- inspiration being like expiration. When you expire, you, you die, right? You give up the ghost. Um, but if you inspire, it means you breathe. It really means to give up the, your last breath, right? Is to expire, like respiration, right? Uh, to inspire is to breathe in, so that the scriptures are the product the imagination, of the imagination, not of men, but of the Holy Spirit, right? Um, from the beginning to the end, from Moses all the way through to St. John's Apocalypse, Revelation. Um, so that's what inspired means. Infallible is attached to rule of faith and practice, Whew. which they actually, the folks in the, in the 60s that were rebelling against kind of the traditional church, if you like. I, I don't really like that term, but it's probably the only one we can use right now. Um, they did not think that the word of God was the sole governing uh, force or power or whatever um, for everything that's done in the church in terms of faith, faith and practice. Now, um, we, we try to pray this all the time, even at like a voters meeting, we say that, that all that we would do to be to God's glory and for his purpose that, that it would be subject to God's word, that we wouldn't act or speak or contrary to what God has given us to say or do. Um, or you might say it this way, that all that we would do is held captive by the word of God. And that doesn't mean that God's word tells us how to govern ourselves, you know, like whether you have a voters or you have a board of directors or however you want to do that. But it does say that their actions and, and the, the purpose of what they do uh, needs to always be at, at, to support the, the preaching of the gospel in this place. We read an article in this was a couple of years back on that infallible. Hmm. Part of the issue behind it was with the Catholic Church looking at the Pope as being infallible. Oh, that's true too. And that was a hang-up for some? 
because he's, he's uh, since the middle of the 19th century, the Pope, Pope when he speaks from his chair, ex cathedra, from his big chair, um, his words are infallible. They're, they, they, they bind the whole Roman church. Well, they would say it binds the whole church, but we don't recognize the Pope's authority in that regard. <laughs> right? um, yeah, so that's true too. So the, really the guard here is that one, the word of God is true, that it comes from, that it is from God. Um, not, it's not of, how, did they, how would they view it? They would say, well, it contains God's word. So the Bible contains God's word. But that means it also can, perhaps could contain other things. Uh, the big issues were denial of historic events that the Bible records, the flood being the first one, um, maybe even creation was a big one. Uh, certainly the swallowing of Jonah by the fish was denied. That was not a historic event, even though Jesus says it was. <laughs> Just as Jonah was swallowed, uh, you know, was in the belly of the fish for three days, he says. He, do, he doesn't refer to it as a mythological event. He refers to it as a le- legitimate event, historic event. So that was part of the challenge. And the thought was that if you deny that the Bible is true historically, then you also might deny that what it says spiritually is true, right? And it would lead down that difficult path. What words of Jesus are authentic and which words aren't? Now, Roman, the Roman church, um, even today, is largely in the camp that we're not sure what, what, is actu- what actually is true in the Bible anymore. Now, they wouldn't say it so crassly, but they follow what's called, and this is what they teach in most of their seminaries, what's called the historic critical method. Have you ever heard this? Yeah. So, so we can't know history, and so we, we need to be critical of what the Bible says at points. Um, even giving birth to things called like the Jesus Seminar, which, where a bunch of Bible scholars sat around, and they, had, they cast basically a vote, yes or no, whether each verse in the Bible was true or not, whether it was actually legitimately God's word. And so then they would take and they'd have a scale and they'd say like, this is seven, we think this is like 76% possible that Jesus actually said this because of all the votes from all the scholars. Yeah, and then the difficulty is, is that it brings, it brings into question your faith. The reason why any of this matters, because your faith is grounded upon what Jesus has said. But if Jesus didn't say it, then, then should you believe it, right? Now we leave ourselves open to criticism as a church. Present to us, say, for example, the bones of Jesus. And then, as St. Paul would say, then the whole thing's in vain. It's, a, it's, all, it's all a waste of time, to speak colloquially. Right? If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then the whole thing's a big waste of time. Um, Paul Meyer, I think it was, or was it one of the Meyers who wrote fiction books, did a book back in the 80s, it's probably popular here even, Skeleton in God's Closet. Do you remember this book? Okay. So that LCMS author, they kind of just speculatively wrote, what if we found some bones and they thought they could do DNA sampling or somehow, somehow demonstrate that these were Jesus' bones. And now we have to somewhat rely upon all of the hostile witnesses of the first century that had every incentive to prove that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, um, to re- rely upon actually their hostile witness that they couldn't demonstrate Jesus' resurrection was false. And actually, um, both Jews and Romans alike Historians like Tacitus and uh, Eusebius, the, um, these historians from the first century say, as far as we know, it looks like he did actually rise from the dead because we haven't been able to disprove it. Okay? And they had every incentive to because it was a big movement. So inspired and errant were the two hang-up words that were added 
Um, they were meant to bring the pastor's ca- um, his own conscience captive, so that he couldn't. That I can't, in good conscience, stand before you and say, "Well, I'm not sure this really belongs in the Bible anymore," or "I just don't really agree with it." Which our past, we have pastors doing that in the Missouri Senate, which seems unthinkable maybe now, but uh, maybe if you were alive then, you're in the church then, you might remember that. Um, again, probably not so crass, maybe more subtly. And then infallible uh, rule of faith and practice, that it actually does tell us how to be church, how, how to conduct ourselves, um, especially word and sacrament. That ministry is given to us by God, and it does what it says, and we should trust it, trust Jesus. Following so far? Any questions? Okay. Do you believe, this one might be a little bit easier to understand, do you believe and confess the three ecumenical creeds, namely the Apostles, the Nicene, and the Athanasian creeds, as faithful testimonies to the truth of the Holy Scriptures, and do you reject all the errors which they condemn? And then the pastor repeats, right? I do confess and believe, or believe and confess, and I also reject. The three ecumenical creeds, you know the apostles, hopefully pretty well. Um, In our practice as Lutherans, the way the catechism gives it to us, that's your daily creed. That's the creed that you pray morning and night, and even at meals if you like. Um, That's how Luther instructs us, to pray the apostles' creed. The apostles' creed is historically comes out of the Church of Rome, but long before the Pope. So think like third century in Rome. And it was the creed that was taught to the, those being, who had been baptized. So you, ba- you baptize someone, and then what does Jesus say? Go and make disciples by baptizing and teaching them, right? Yeah, and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which the creed does. It confesses who the Father is, who the Son is, what the Son has done for us, and so and then who the Spirit is. Originally, the third article was much shorter than it is now. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs> but then because, because errors pop up, then they added in Rome uh, the Holy, what do we say, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, forgiveness of sins, resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. All of those blessings or gifts are attached to the Holy Spirit. They're primarily the work of the Spirit who brings us Jesus. Uh, so that's the Apostles' Creed. That one's pretty obvious. Uh, there's not a lot of errors that it's condemning in the Apostles' Creed, although in that third article, I would say those taglines, there's errors behind those, those additions that regards to the Holy Christian Church, communion of saints, forgiveness of sins. So they are, there is a rejection of error, but that requires a historic study to learn. Here's what errors had crept up that those were rejecting. Um, the Nicene Creed is a lot easier to do in regards to what errors it's being condemned there. Uh, the Nicene Creed was first, first draft was at the Council of... Um, Africa. Yeah, it was in 351. It was not at Nicaea. It was at... Oh, I lost it. Too early in the morning. Somebody, somebody have Google? Church Council 351. Anyway, you'll find out what, what the name of it was. That was the first draft, and then... Um, over the next hundred or so years to another date that's escaping me at the moment, it was finalized or finally drafted by another council at the, at, in Nicaea, Constantinople. So that was on the eastern part of the church. Um, that creed was written specifically against a number of errors. 
primarily against a man named Arius, and then what we today call Arianism, not like white race supremacy, but um, those who followed Arian. And Arius denied the divinity of Jesus, that he was the true son of God. Um, Antioch, was that what No. How do you spell it? S-I-R-M-I-U-M. Oh, okay. There's probably another name for it, too, that I learned. Yeah, Antioch. I, it's, maybe it's 451 is Constantinople. I see a Constantinople, and then it's 3-something for the other council. There are councils all of the time. <laughs> yeah. So th- there's errors that crept up. Another one is called adoptionism, which is kind of like Arianism, in this term that, that God the Father adopted the son of Mary and Joseph to be his divine son, um, which the Bible doesn't teach, but uh, many held to that. There was, there, was, ugh, there was all sorts of other ones. I think of all the names of them. Uh, but mostly in regards to the divinity of Jesus, which you'll see when we confess the Nicene Creed that there's all sorts of special words that are thrown in there, special as in um, kind of frady theological words, that maybe it would be worth doing a whole study of the Nicene Creed. Oh, I have heard from a number of you that you appreciated uh, what was in the Picnic Sunday Bulletin, and I also on Easter for the Nicene Creed were all those scripture references. So if you didn't save that, I can give you a copy of that, and you can look up those references. But what would also be helpful is to make a version of that where it refers to all of the errors that are being rejected, not just the texts. But then also, here's who, is, here's who the confessors have in mind. We know who they had in mind because this was at a church council and they, there was somebody taking notes the whole time to say, here's their arguments. Here's, what, here's why they settled on this word. So let's see, of one substance, for example, is actually one word, homoousius in Greek, of one essence or being with the Father. So he's not separate from the Father, but he is, he's of the Father. He and the Father, Son, and Spirit are of one essence, of one being. What's another one begotten, that's in there? Begotten, not made. Begotten, not made. Oh, gosh. What is begotten? Uh, oh, uh, something. Monogenes is the word. Only begotten. Monogenes. Another Greek word. So meaning on, on, the only genesis of the Father, which is like, what are you talking about? Well, he, he wasn't a creature that was made in the creaturely sense, but he was, he, he come, to be begotten is to come from the Father, which later then comes up in another really controversial statement in the third article, proceeding from the Father and the Son. That, that article actually divided, in part divided the church, yeah. Which, so there's all these errors in the Nicene Creed that, it, that are in the background that the reason we confess that creed, one is because um, these errors threatened the very fabric of faith because it denied who Christ was and what he had come to do. But on the flip side, um, there's also the fact that actually many people died to defend that faith, um, the faith that's confessed there. So you say, well, really, do we have to confess the Nicene Creed? And you say, well, no, we don't have to, but we do because, one, it teaches what God's Word says. Two, if... if it's used in study, this would go for the Apostles' Creed too, it could actually be a helpful way to help diagnose um, errors when they creep into the church. So that, how's it, how's it go? Oh, no, this comes later in the next, art, in the next question. 
But they, they, they help diagnose when people, when you or when the pastor perceives that there's, there's some confusion as to who the Father, Son, or Spirit is, what the works are that, that, they, that they do. Does that follow so far? Uh, and then simply put, though, I mean, really the reason to confess the creed is somebody come into the church and they say, what do you believe? And then they hear you say, I believe. <laughs> right? And, and the Nicene Creed in particular, which is our tradition as Lutherans, uh, you don't have to like it, but it's the tradition is that when there's a sacrament celebrated, you confess the Nicene Creed. And, and for prayer services or daily offices or in your home, you pray the Apostles' Creed. But isn't uh, it also a defense for yourself? Yeah, it is. Errors, yeah. Somebody says something, you go, yeah, that sounds, wait a minute. You know, at first it sounds good, but right. look at it. Right. So when they ask you, what do you believe? You can say, here's what I believe. Or they say, don't you believe this? You can say, well, actually, no, and this is how we say it. This is how we confess what the Bible teaches about the Spirit, the work of the Spirit, for example. Um, but also, why do we confess it together? And you've heard me announce the creed, maybe in a peculiar way that you hadn't heard before, but um, I think it's a helpful one. I don't use it every Sunday. Sometimes I don't announce the creed at all. We just start, right? But um, it's a little bit easier to do in service one to just start into it. Service three, maybe not so much. Um, but we're in service one now. But I say, uh, uh, we now confess our baptismal faith and show Christian love for one another by confessing together the Nicene Creed. That your neighbor needs to hear your confession as well. Um, what do, how do we say this? There's confidence in numbers. Strength in numbers. Yeah, strength in numbers. Uh, and it's true. I mean, it's nothing wrong with having a church service with three people. That happens here. Um, Sometimes on like Sunday night, especially, right? Um, just so it's hit or miss as to how we might have 20 people, we might have three people. Just depends on the week. Um, but there is something to be said for, for when, like today, the majority of the congregation will be gathered at one time together. That you build each other up, uh, both with your confession of faith, with your words, but also with your, with your voice when you, when, if you're able to sing, um, or with your prayers. Yeah. So. Nicene, and then the Athanasian Creed, which is everyone's favorite, uh, which we just confessed a few weeks ago, right? Two weeks ago for Trinity Sunday. That's, that's the traditional Sunday. Um, I'm of, of the mind that if the pastor vows to uphold it, and if your congregation um, also, it's in your constitution, that you, that you say you will, only, you will only preach and teach according to the three ecumenical creeds, which includes the Athanasian um, that maybe you should know it a little bit better than just one Sunday a year. That's kind of my, I know that sounds like, oh man, now we have to learn a third creed. And it's a long one. And it's even worse than long, right? Because it's, how do you want to say? Heavy. Thick, heavy, what? Repetitive. Repetitive, yeah, it seems repetitive. Three times, right? Three times. <laughs> Did you get it the first time, right? No. Not one father, but three fathers. No, not three fathers, but one father. Not three sons, but one. You got it? Not three Holy Spirits, but one Holy Spirit. So this is written even later. It's attributed to Athanasius. Uh, Athanasius was long dead when the creed was authored. But Athanasius gets the namesake because Athanasius was the chief defender of the Nicene Creed. Ah, okay. So it's Athanasius that the, the legend has it that he went up and... Um, no, that's, that's actually St. Nicholas. St. Nicholas was also at Nicaea. <laughs> so those, these are two big characters. You remember, like Santa Claus, right? But it's a slapping Arian 
Um, one of them, I think it was at, I thought it was Athanasius, maybe it was Nicholas, whatever. One of them slapped this heretic, Arius. I mean, he was, he was teaching falsely, just at the council. This is like, does this happen at church meetings? You got two pastors and they're arguing about, no, 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 he is, a, he is, he is the son of God. No, he's not. He's only begotten. No, he's not. And then you just whack him upside the head, which is kind of funny. A little bit different time. So the Athanasian Creed is attached to Athanasius, um, uh, but, but in terms of, it teaches the faith of Athanasius, we would say. Um, all, really what it is is an expansion of the Nicene Creed. And you'll notice that, especially in the, third, the latter part of the second article, talking about um, our Lord Jesus Christ, or maybe it's, and then also into the third article, it sounds a lot like the Nicene Creed. So when we had it printed or in your hymnal, it's like the last third or so seems pretty comparable to what the Nicene Creed says. But the, all the stuff before that about, about the relationship of the Father, Son, and Spirit, and because uh, there were errors that had cropped up in regards to the Holy Spirit and his role and responsibility, but also who the Father was and his relationship to the Son and to the Spirit. Mm-hmm. But then there's, so there's all these like, here's what it is, but here's what it not, what it is not, right? So here's the good confession, here's what we exclude. Here's, so there's a lot of, historic data that's really built into that creed that you just don't have time to study um, as you're speaking it, right? And it does seem repetitive or redundant, but actually some of that has to do with translation that again, just like only begotten and of one substance are very technical theological terms that were wrestled over um, for more than 100 years or, or more uh, this is the term that they finally settled on. Um, so the same with the Athanasian Creed. So, the, so what is the pastor actually vowing here? Not only does he know the creeds and that he teaches what they teach, but he knows all that stuff. And as you can tell, even from me, there's so much, I forget it, what all the names of all the errors are, right, that are there. But it is meant to, this is why we confess them regularly. And I would argue that you should confess an Athanasian Creed at least probably like four times a year, maybe. I don't know. Um, every fifth Sunday would be a fine practice, maybe, to drop it in there. Because uh, you only have a fifth Sunday about four times a year, right? Or five times. Uh, just because it's supposed to guide, again, be one of these guides of faith and, and of faith um, for the pastor and for your church. But how can you know if you don't know it, Right. And then if you have an issue with anything in there, then that gives opportunity for the, you and the pastor in Bible class or in per, personal study to kind of work through that and say, okay, here's what's going on. Here's the background. Pastor might probably has to do some research to find out. Here's why we say those particular words. Yeah. The good news is you may, not, you may have studied all this stuff and have forgotten some of it, mm-hmm. but you still know where to look it up. Well, that's true. That's right. I think it's Wikipedia now. Yeah. Just Google it. <laughs> no, no. Again, both with the Nicene and the Athanasian Creed, the councils, their their decree, their their minutes, the meeting minutes, if you like, the decrees, they're all extant. We have, we actually know the arguments and the what was going into these documents. So, and the, those documents are sitting on. Well, right now they're sitting in a box in storage, but usually are on the pastor's study shelf, so you can pull them down quick. I have them electronically too in here. All right, how are we doing on time? I can't think.
tell what time it is. Yeah. In the summer, when do you, how long do you like to go? To about 5 after, 10 after, or just end at 9? Yeah. Yeah, because the next part is a much bigger conversation um, and will lead us in another direction as well. But uh, is that helpful so far to hear these are the pastor's vows and this is why he vows these things? Does it seem a little burdensome? Like, you say yes? Oh, yeah. Yeah, but I think... Keep this on one guy. Right. Um, no wonder there's not so many of them. Well, yeah, and so one of the purposes of seminary is, is examination, but it's instruction and examination, a lot like catechism is for, for, for every, everyone in the Lutheran church goes through some catechesis with their pastor. Um, is one, you learn what these things are and what they say, and then, and then actually before you're um, set apart or ordained, you are examined on them as well. So my, in my theological interview, it sounds horrible, um, and it generally is, although mine was pretty, pretty much a softball because I had one of the, uh, well, I kind of scammed the system a little bit, but that's fine. So they assign one pastor, you don't, one of the professors, you don't get to pick him, they say, here's your theological interviewer, and then, but then he gets a partner, but you get to pick the guy who goes with him. So I, asked, I just asked him, I said, who do you think I should pick to go with you? <laughs> he's like, oh, pick him, and he's just going to ask you these questions. I'm like, all right, good. So, <laughs> so just picked it. But um, no, I mean, it's just like uh, if, you were, if you were examined <clears throat> at the end of your catechesis as a confirmand, and you go into it and you're terrified. And in the end, the pastor is probably going to be gracious and kind to you unless it was 30 or 40 years ago and then, then he was evil and unjust. And, no, I'm just kidding. But, um, you know, there'll be a little bit of uh, encouragement or coaching. So some, one of the questions I was asked, we'll end on this. Um, I was asked, what does infalli- what, what infallible and inspired mean to you? That was actually one of my questions. Um, uh, what do you think it means? And my answer was, I don't really know, which was actually funny. They laughed uh, because I was in a class called the Word of God at the time. And my instructor um, had spent the last like three weeks before my interview arguing that nobody really knows what these terms mean. So, um, but that's, that's how he is, grumpy old man. And then uh, the other question were, uh, one of the other questions were, uh, what are Luther's hymns that he wrote to teach the catechism? Now, do you know those? That Luther wrote catechism hymns. We sing them. Can you name one for like his baptism hymn? All who believe and are baptized shall see the Lord's salvation. Right. Um, I think the sacrament of the altar one is Lord Jesus Christ. You have prepared. I think that's the one. That's Luther's. Maybe. Um, let's see. What would be the one on the creed? We all believe in one true God. Right. Or no, not that one. The other one. The, the one where Mark will put on the 16-foot pedals upstairs and the whole room's shaking. Yeah. Uh, we all believe in, in, one, in not one true God. We all believe in God, something or other. So he wrote hymns for each of the catechism. Obviously, I, I knew them all then, which is really hilarious since I just can't remember them this morning. But um, that was 10 years ago almost. So Yeah. So good. Weighty, burdensome for the pastor, but intentionally so, and really for your benefit and for his benefit meant to be actually um, so that you receive the blessings of God uh, without confusion or mixture or error.
All right, let's close with prayer. Pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right, go in. Lord's peace. We'll see you upstairs. Keep your shoes.